good morning again. You all are enjoying this uh, Sunday school journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're going to go today to Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. So today, uh, as Jesus is going to, he's going to be continuing to address the issue of the heart in the, uh, as we look at the issues of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, um, their obsession with merely external righteousness uh, and not examining the sinful heart. Uh, we're going to, to look at an... Um, an interesting and timely aspect of uh, the error of the Pharisee, which is seeking the praise of, of people. Uh, so let's, let's read this together. Uh, Matthew 6, verses 1 through 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I think we could all agree that the world loves to brag about what it does for other people. Uh, we know, we could name probably a list of celebrities who either have a foundation named after them, dedicated to some mission or other, uh, the eradication of some disease or poverty or something in the world. Uh, and what they'll do then is they'll tabulate how much money they've raised for a particular thing, a particular cause or mission, and then just tell the world how much good they've done for people and uh, tweet about it and uh, the media will cover it and all these good things. To them anyway, they might see them as good, but that is the, the heart of a Pharisee, because what are they doing it for? They're not purely being, uh, they're not looking out for the needs of others. They're not truly helping anyone. They're actually helping themselves, 
and they're using other people, needy people, as a means to, to make themselves look good to the world. Well, that is what, exactly what the Pharisees did here, and they did that kind of thing in three different ways. We see that they, they served themselves in the issues of generosity and prayer and fasting. So Christians are called to be righteous, and as we go through this passage, we're going to see Jesus does not say, don't be generous, don't pray, uh, and, and don't fast. These are good things. But the essence here, and we're going to see this borne out as we look through the passage together, is uh, that these are good things that the Pharisees and others like them do for the wrong reason, and therefore they actually turn a good thing into a bad thing. So rather, instead of doing that, Christ is calling us to be obedient to him with no expectation of adulation or accolades from our neighbors. Uh, We should actually expect to be hated. Remember, uh, they hated you because they hated Christ first, right? Um, So we should actually live for the praise of God alone, for his glory and not our own glory. So that's sort of the big idea here. And that's, that's borne out in this repeated phrase that we're going to see and we've already read through that your father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, so let's look at verse 1. So Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And this is sort of the heart of the issue right here, because obviously we're called to be righteous, right? Jesus died to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness, and then his righteousness, his perfect righteousness, because he is God, is given to us on credit. It's credited to us. So we are to walk in righteousness, but there's a, there's a, a very minute detail here that we have, to, we have to grapple with. We should practice our righteousness, but beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. If anything, we should be practicing our righteousness before God alone. We're to give glory to his name uh, in the exercise of righteousness. As we grow in holiness, as we grow in our life of sanctification, that is to be done before God, primarily. Now, of course, people are helped uh, when we lead a righteous life and lead a righteous example, um, but that's not the primary purpose. The primary purpose is the glory of God and of his grace, not gaining popularity for ourselves or appearing to others as a spiritual giant or something like that. So we should beware practicing righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And that's the real heart of the Pharisee right there, in order to be seen. And if we act that way, then we have no reward from our Father who is in heaven. And we're going to see here that if we do practice our righteousness this way in front of other people for the purpose of getting their respect, getting accolades from them, that is our reward. We're living for our own glory, not God's glory. So let's look at the first example here in verse, uh, verses 2 through 4. So thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So does anybody, does anybody think that the Pharisees actually had uh, shofar artists following them into the, into the synagogue as they came to give their offering? 
No, Jesus is using hyperbole here, uh, kind of like uh, when he was talking about uh, cut off your, your right hand if it causes you to sin or pluck out your eye. He wasn't telling us to, uh, to maim ourselves for righteousness, right? Well, here, this is sort of a don't toot your own horn as you walk into worship, which is what the, the uh, Pharisees did. <clears throat> Remember, we've talked previously about how they would make uh, a tremendous display of coming in and they would they'd drop the coins in the collection box uh, and they would even tithe out of their spice rack. You know? So they would just bring these tremendous sacrifices into the temple or into the synagogue and just lay them, lay them out for the world to see. Wow, how amazing, how generous that person is. Uh, well, actually, they weren't being generous at all. They were actually being quite selfish by doing that because what they were doing was... Uh, taking this command to be generous, right, this, this good gift, they were not giving a gift, they were receiving a gift. They were receiving the, the respect, the, the praises of the people around them, rather than honoring God. The Pharisees performed their self-righteousness so publicly that it was almost as if they were bringing a marching band with them. They were so desperate for attention, and in getting it, they, they got their reward. They got their reward, which was the praise of men. They honored themselves rather than honoring God. And like, uh, like I said before, they were doing a good thing for the wrong reason. They were doing it for the applause of men rather than the praise of God. But if we look in verse 3, uh, there's a different path uh, for, for those who follow Christ. <clears throat> when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So now we know there's no way to, to trick your left and right hand to act in such a way that one hand doesn't know what the other hand's doing. This is, a, again, some hyperbole. <clears throat> this is a word picture. Christians are to be so concerned with the right motives for what we do that we will absolutely minimize as much as possible uh, our righteousness in order to avoid the praise or attention of other people. Uh, maybe this is why uh, when we pass a collection plate, we fold our checks five or six times to make them as tiny as possible so you can drop them in. I don't know. You can take that how you will. But, uh, but I think that's, that's part of the principle here, that we, we must be careful if we're going to live a life that honors God to ensure that we are not looking for the praise of people when we're doing actually what God has commanded us to do. And we get this recurring blessing in verse 4. So that your giving may be in secret. That's the key. Your giving may be in secret. Don't toot your own horn about it. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Our Father sees what's done in secret. That's actually a blessing to us, but I would say probably for the unbelieving world, that is one of the most frightening things you could say because you can't hide anything from God. God sees your actions and God sees your heart. But those of us who've been forgiven of our sins, uh, who have been given a heart of flesh and our heart of stone taken away, that's a tremendous blessing. <clears throat> that is a reward in and of itself. It's nothing we've earned. It's only by the grace of God that we have the ability to stand before God with our sins forgiven and to live a life of righteousness that he's called us to. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And his rewards are better than any worldly reward. Uh, any gift that any person could give us or payment for something we've done, God, God has given us his grace. We have the blood of his son 
that forgives our sins, that covers us, and we have his righteousness that we live in. These are sure and good rewards and promises from God, um, salvation, sanctification, and glorification. So we can say confidently that for those of us who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Um, we only have a life of, of celebratory um, praise toward God for all that we have. So Jesus moves now to the subject of prayer in verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. The Pharisees treat prayer the exact same way that they treated generosity. They did it for attention and adulation. And it's interesting here that we look, uh, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. It even alliterates like a, like a good Baptist. Uh, synagogues and street corners, both in worship, which is somewhat private, though with a group, but also in the most public place, the street corner. But prayer isn't a performance art, uh, as and the, the Pharisees certainly practiced it and mastered that art, I would say, uh, in a hypocritical fashion. It's the necessary and natural breath of faith. So if we were to breathe in Scripture, we breathe out prayer. And again, that's not, that's not a performance. That's just a natural function. Now, of course, here Jesus isn't saying don't pray publicly, right? Jesus prayed publicly in his ministry. Uh, his disciples prayed publicly um, after the, the resurrection as they went on in their ministry. This isn't to erase public prayer. But just like with generosity, this is about the, the purpose and the practice of prayer. Why do we pray? And how do we pray? Uh, well, Jesus is going to get to that in a minute with, the, uh, with what we call the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer. Um, not only did the, the Pharisees stand and make their words very loud and, and uh, clearly audible to everyone around them, but we have to remember also that they sort of had um, <clears throat> a costume to put on. Um, the Pharisees uh, in, in, in contemporary Judaism today, there's uh, clothing that has to be worn during prayer as well. There's a, a special prayer shawl that is put over one's head at, at particular times uh, during their appointed prayer time. And there's also uh, what are called phylacteries, which are additional pieces uh, that are to be worn, a piece on your forehead and then a piece that's wrapped around your hand. So there's a whole costume to go with this. And I, I think it's kind of ironic, really, that uh, to have a prayer shawl over your head while trying to get the attention of other people. <laughs> you know, if the shawl's supposed to hide your face and, and you're before God and hiding your face and yet standing on the street corner and, uh, and making a, a spectacle, that's not, that's not right. That's not the way that we're commanded to do it. So Jesus says instead, truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, so we're, we're expected to pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now understand like this, uh, this would be difficult uh, for people living at this time to go into your room. Uh, it's not like uh, the houses we have today where there's multiple rooms for multiple uses. People had very small homes. Uh, so I would say that this instruction here to go into your room isn't necessarily about <clears throat> not being heard by other people, 
Um, if you think about uh, in the first century and before, houses were almost like apartment complexes. Like there was a, a shared wall between every two homes. And uh, those weren't, uh, they weren't very well-made walls. So this isn't, there's no uh, soundproofing going on here. Uh, but there is a small amount of privacy in these small homes. But the point here is to shut out everyone else uh, when you pray. So go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, no relation, um, comments on this, and I think this is really helpful. Talking about this, uh, this uh, verse, you shut out and forget people and yourself, whether in public or in private. You can enter that closet when walking alone on an empty street or between rooms in your home. So it's not necessarily saying <clears throat> you must take an appointed time and go in your room to, to fulfill this commandment from, of Christ, right? It, it's not about that at all. You can, you can be in your room praying to your father who sees in secret while in public because the point is not being in a particular place, though that can help, okay? So I'm not saying don't go into, the, into your bedroom and close the door and, and have a, a quiet time of prayer. No, that's good. That's, that's good, but that's not exclusive, right? That's not exactly what we're talking about here. This is about when we pray, we have to focus on God. God is who we're speaking to in prayer, whether in public or private, like Martin Lloyd-Jones says. So even public prayers in church you know, we're not, somebody who prays in public here is not praying to you or even for you. We're praying to God, and we get the benefit of praying corporately, hearing one person pray. So the whole heart of the thing, the purpose of the thing is completely different when we think about it that way versus how the Pharisees acted. It's all about the godly intention to close out the world and focus on talking to our Heavenly Father. So to be other-focused or self-focused and not God-focused in prayer, again, whether that's in public or in private, is actually a mockery of one of the highest callings of a Christian. If we're to, to practice prayer and think more about ourselves and how we look or how we sound, or about what other people are going to think about the words that I'm going to say, or, uh, or how I look when I pray, if I if I bend my head too low, are you going to see my bald spot kind of a thing? Uh, which is a concern for some of us. Uh, but that's not, that's not a good thing. That's not a good consideration. That's not the point. The point is to, to speak to God, to give our praises to him, to glorify him, and to ask him for the things that we need. And so that flows now into uh, verse 7 which is about the content of prayer. So if we've talked here about, we'll call it the mode of prayer, where you are, what the situation is in which you pray, then we have to talk about <clears throat> the words we say when we pray and the actual uh, delivery of a prayer. Again, whether in private or in public uh, or in corporate worship. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. So heap up, uh, we would be talking here about mindless repetition. Now again, we have to make a consideration for uh, what's called importunity or being fervent in prayer. Uh, let's, we could think about the, uh, the parable of the widow with the judge, 
right, where she kept coming to him day after day after day with the same request, the same request, until he gave in and granted it. Or actually, uh, let's turn a little later in Matthew to Matthew 26, 44. <clears throat> We're going to see an example there of Jesus uh, showing some importunity. Matthew 26, 44. So in this, in this passage, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, actually, you know what, we will, uh, we'll start a little earlier than that. Let's start in 40. Matthew 26, 40. <clears throat> and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. So this is what we would call importunity in prayer. Being fervent, <clears throat> obviously Jesus had a very heavy burden on his mind right in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's facing the cross at this moment imminently. And so he's saying these same words to God over and over again. That is the opposite of mindless repetition, if you think about it. It's very much mindful repetition. He had a heavy burden on his heart at that moment, and he was going to God with the words to express that burden again and again and again. And I think all of us have experienced at some time a heavy burden in our heart where all we can, all we can say is just the same words over and over again to God, crying out for help in a situation in our, in our, situation, in our lives or um, praying on behalf of somebody else uh, in their suffering. That's a good thing. That is not mindless repetition. <clears throat> this is about repeating words we don't mean. The Pharisees heaped up these words almost like piles of gold, as if by saying repeated prayers from their tradition. And there's, I mean, even, even today you can buy books of the uh, Jewish liturgy, and it's just, that's, that is what is prayed. <clears throat> there's no extemporaneous or personal prayer. It is all written out and recited. Um, the Pharisees would heap up these prayers almost like heaps of gold, like I was saying, uh, and lifting them up to God, look how good I am. I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing this good thing for you. Uh, I'm, I'm a good person. And even so, they were, as Jesus says here, uh, the Gentiles do this, and they think they'll be heard for their many words. So it's not only a Pharisee problem, it's a Gentile problem as well. It's a sin problem, is what it comes down to. It's the sin of the human heart, that we think we're good enough that if we just continue to do something that we consider righteous, we will get grace for that, that we will get merit for that before God. Uh, it, it reminds me of uh, an interesting television experience I had as a young person flipping through the channels and coming to the, uh, the Roman Catholic channel and seeing a room full of aged, aged nuns uh, saying the rosary constantly, constantly in a monotone fashion, the same words over and over again, blank expressions on their face uh, for, I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour, and just thinking, what, what purpose is that? 
what, what does that get? Um, well, according to their theological tradition, you are building up merit for yourself by saying these things. You may be atoning for your own sins by saying these words. You know, you could go to confession and they would tell you, <clears throat> say this many Our Fathers and say this many Hail Marys and that will do for your sin. It's the same principle here uh, that we're seeing Jesus attacking. Um, this is not an incantation. This prayer is not a magical spell that you put the right ingredients in, you put the right words in, and you say the right words enough times, and boom, God will give you what you ask for. Or God will break through your situation, or you will be a better person, or whatever outcome that you most desire. These are all bad rewards that you won't get, or you will get them, and you'll get no reward from our Heavenly Father. Martin Luther has a, a good quote on this point. Christian prayers should have few words and much meaning, but pagan prayers have many words and no meaning. They heap up words. <clears throat> you think of uh, even the, um, the prophets of Baal in the, uh, the event on Mount Carmel with Elijah and the, the, the dueling sacrifices. They raved all day long. They said the same words, they even came to the point of shedding their own blood, cutting their skin and, and letting blood um, for, no, for no purpose. But Elijah said a God-honoring prayer, asked him to show his glory before them, and what happened, even the, the drowned wood that was just poured water upon water on it uh, went up in fire, and God showed his glory. <clears throat> Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the problem with the false way of praying is that its very approach is wrong. Its essential fault is that it is concentrating on itself. My interest, if I'm like a Pharisee, is in myself as the one praying. The second is that I feel the efficacy of my prayer depends on my much praying or upon my particular manner of prayer. And the common denominator there is there's no concern for what God expects for what God has called uh, the, the man or woman of faith to do when it comes to the discipline of prayer. It's all about me, all about me. What Jesus now is, going, is giving us a, uh, a model prayer instead. We'll start, in verse, we'll start in verse 8. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. <clears throat> Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, commentators have called this uh, in recent years uh, the model prayer of Jesus rather than the Lord's prayer. And there's some semantics involved there. A lot of people uh, consider <clears throat> uh, the high priestly prayer of John as the Lord's prayer, which, okay, that makes sense. It's coming from him. Jesus is teaching about prayer here, but that's not to say that these aren't good words. These are good words to pray, right? These are words that came from Jesus, so the words themselves are good to pray. But Jesus is also speaking here to pray like this, not pray this, 
pray like this. So we have a, a, a structure for prayer here, a model, a model prayer that begins with our Father in heaven. Now, this is, uh, this is a radical thing in prayer. Um, the Pharisees didn't pray to God as their father, which makes sense because he wasn't their father, right? Jesus says elsewhere that you're of your father, the devil. Um, so they didn't, they didn't see God as father. <clears throat> but there actually are uh, several places in the Old Testament that, that do describe God as father. Uh, if you want to stick your bulletin in Matthew here, uh, we can turn to Deuteronomy. We're just going to look at a couple places in Deuteronomy. First is Deuteronomy 14. Deuteronomy 14, 1. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. <clears throat> you are sons of the Lord your God. I would say that's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty huge statement uh, that seems to have been largely forgotten by the Pharisees. Uh, we can turn also in Deuteronomy to chapter 32, verse 6. This is the, from the Song of Moses. He's calling out uh, the sin of Israel, as so many people did, as so many prophets did. <clears throat> Verse 6, Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? What the Pharisees would do is, if they did occur, <clears throat> if, if they came upon a... Uh, a passage of scripture that referred to God as Father, or there was a liturgical prayer that made mention of God as the Father of creation or something like that, it would be counterbalanced out with as God as king or God as ruler or something like that, a, a majestic statement. Never the, the close familial use that Jesus gives us here. Uh, this would, the Father would be the Aramaic word Abba, which actually is still used today by people to uh, refer to their own father. Um, and whether a child or adult, that word still follows. So it's not, some people have tried to make that say that it means daddy or papa or something like that. Not, not really, <clears throat> because it's not only is it a familial word for a father, but it, it also comes with a measure of authority as well. You're recognizing the authority of your father as well as his closeness to you in relationship. So this is, this is radical to have such a personal word ascribed to God, our father in heaven. But it, it really, this is a defining feature of Christianity because we see, especially after this point where Jesus first gives us that use, God our father, we see that all through the New Testament. <clears throat> it's in practically every... Uh, one of the uh, apostolic uh, greetings at the, at the front of every New Testament letter, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Continually reminding us, God is our Father. That's a good thing. Uh, that's a thing we should remember. Um, that's something we praise God for because we were born his enemies, right? 
We were born cosmic traitors. We hated God. That was our default setting by birth. And yet by his grace and by uh, the cross of Christ and his righteousness being given to us, we can now call our former enemy God, our father. We've been adopted into his family. So then we say, hallowed be your name. And hallowed is an old word, a very old word, that still remains in our, our contemporary translations because we've been saying the Lord's Prayer like this for so long that <clears throat> to get rid of the word would be to cause a civil war. So we retain the word, but we have to understand it as well. What, it, what does hallowed mean? Hallowed means to regard as holy, uh, to honor highly. Uh, you'll, you'll hear the influence of John Piper on me, uh, to be treasured, to be savored, to be delighted in. This, is, this petition, I, I will say, is central to the five petitions that follow. This is the high purpose of all prayer, that God is glorified. And we're going to see as we go through this that the glory of God is the common denominator for this entire prayer. The opposite of the Pharisee purpose for prayer, which is glory to me, glory to my reputation, glory to my self-righteousness. Instead, we glorify our Father in His righteousness. So we say, your kingdom come. We know, we recognize that God reigns in absolute sovereignty, and it is His intent to bring His kingdom to fruition. And it's about our desire to see the kingdom in its fruition as well, to come in, in its fullness and that the earth would behold the glory of God and praise Him for eternity. And that's a good, that's a good uh, desire. That's a good thing to pray for, <clears throat> and God has purpose to do that because God has purpose that his name be glorified. And the kingdom, we have to remember, is already and not yet. So as we gather here for corporate worship, a bit of the kingdom has occurred, right? That is what brings us together, is the gospel of Christ, what he's done for us, and our desire, by the help of the Holy Spirit, to give him praise, and to set aside the Lord's day, to focus and, and, and gather in corporate worship. We also pray, your will be done. And again, it's the desire to see God's perfect and benevolent will enacted on earth as perfectly as it is in heaven, which is perfectly. <clears throat> so God's will, we are seeking here, we're asking in this petition that God's will will be done as perfectly here on earth, on his footstool, as it is in his throne room. And he will do this. That, that is his purpose. He, and he will be glorified in doing that. He's called the church to go forth and obey his will in the face of the world. But it's by his power that we do that. We can't obey him on our own. We can't desire his will on our own. And we can't witness to people about his glory and about his will uh, that, uh, that our sins be forgiven, that Christ be magnified in the forgiving of sins without his help. That is to his glory, to the praise of his name, that we do that. Sometimes when we think about the Lord's Prayer, we tend to <clears throat> split it in half between the first three petitions, which are about God, and the, the second three about us. And while these, these three petitions that come at the end do concern us, Again, they're not about us. Again, these are for God's glory as well. So let's look at verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. 
We have immediate concerns in our life. We have to eat. How could we praise God? How could we uh, be useful uh, for the kingdom? How could we desire his will and be obedient to what he's called us to be as Christians if we're dead, if we're starved, if we're dead? So we need his help to sustain our life, our earthly life, our bodies, so we can go about hallowing his name in the face of the world. We need sustenance, and that's at the center of this prayer. Glorify yourself in giving us our daily needs so we can go about and live the life that you've called us to live. So not only do we need sustenance, we need forgiveness. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The Christian life should be marked by repentance, first unto salvation, so from death to life, but then repentance in response to God's kindness. So in our life of sanctification, we will be continually repenting. We, we will have debts that need to be forgiven by God. And so those who've been forgiven much will forgive much. If we've been forgiven of the worst sin uh, of, of all, uh, which is hating God, <clears throat> again, to quote R.C. Sproul, as I do every time, to be cosmic traitors against a holy God, how could we not forgive people of much, much, much lesser, uh, lesser debts? It would, be, uh, it would be like being the, uh, the ungracious master who uh, he had someone in his debt uh, with a very large debt, and he said, For, you are forgiven. You do not have to repay this debt. And then that man goes out and throws him in into prison for a, a pittance compared to what that man had been forgiven of. That's not, that's not for us. The church should not act that way. Th- that people who have been forgiven should forgive others. So we need forgiveness. And, and honestly, we could, we could tie that back to the, the uh, beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, um, because if there are debts, if there are rivalries between us, we should make peace. We should forgive Verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Some people have split this up actually into two petitions, but it's really one. And it confuses people sometimes. Lead us not into temptation. God tempts no one, right? God is not the tempter, okay? God tempts no one. But I think, thinking about, if we think about this, we go through trials in life, right? In fact, uh, to, to prove that point, let's turn to James 1, talking about the, the trials of our life. Uh, we, can, we can sin in those. We can be weakened. Uh, we could view them improperly. We could try to uh, work out uh, the situation in our own power and fall into sin. Or we can, uh, we can be tried and, uh, and come out um, faithful, um, relying on, on God's blessings. James 1, 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Uh, we'll go to verse 3, 3 through 4. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Uh, one more, uh, 1 Peter, also chapter 1, 
just a couple pages later. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter's been talking about uh, the inheritance that is the Christian and a faith that is being guarded, uh, God's power guarded uh, through faith for salvation. So verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in what? in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, we see that, that God's glory is central to this entire thing. That in our trials of life, relying on his, on his gifts, on the righteousness of Christ, on his promise to help us in our time of need, that the the the... the the soundness of our faith can be tested and strengthened rather than falling into sin, into temptation, and into sin uh, in times of difficulty, uh, which is easy to do. Our flesh is weak, right? The flesh is weak, and that's why we need God's help to avoid temptation. We need his, his blessings to remind us uh, that there is something better than our favorite pet sin. So lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil in that hour. Or your Bible, uh, depending on your translation, may say the evil one, uh, which would be the tempter, that would be Satan. So all of this, all of this prayer, again, is coming down to the glory of God. We praise our Father in heaven, and we set aside his name, and because of his name, you know, biblically, the name is to be a signal of the entire character of a person. So by hallowing God's name, we are praising him in his fullness, in his, all of his attributes, in all of his glories and excellencies, the half of which we can't even understand. But we have enough in Scripture that there are plenty of glories of God to, to hallow and to praise him for. And we desire to see his kingdom come and his will be done, to see his name glorified on that level across the earth um, perfectly. And so... As we go forth in our little bit, in our calling, in our life, we, we ask God to give us our daily needs, and we'll praise him for his provision. Um, we will ask him to forgive our debts, because he is a great and gracious God who loves to forgive our sins, and we praise him for that, and we give him glory, and that in our times of trial, which we should expect, life is hard, right? There are times that test our faith deeply, and sometimes there are light trials that even we can trip over in our sin. So we ask God to preserve us or give us perseverance in times where we are facing temptation or trial. So we're asking here in these last three, 11 through 13, for sustenance, forgiveness, and perseverance. All to God's glory. Not like a Pharisee, I'm going to do all these things so that I look great. I'm going to do these things, ask for these things, so that God will look great, will be treasured and glorified in my heart. Uh, and then in verse 14, Jesus further, in, in verse 15, drives the point home about forgiveness, that we must forgive others for their trespasses, and your heavenly Father will also forgive you. We cannot just cut off 
a life of forgiveness. We aren't scorekeepers, like Steve said last week. We should not be scorekeepers. That's how the world works. So we have to remember that we have been forgiven much, and actually we glorify God when we wholeheartedly forgive others for their own lesser trespasses than what we had committed against God. And then the last section about fasting, which is much the same as we had seen earlier, just like prayer and generosity, the Pharisees falsely practiced a good spiritual discipline of fasting by doing it for man's accolades and approval. In fact, there's only one fast commanded in the law. That's the Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur. But the Pharisees had actually added more and more and more fasts to their life um, through their traditions. So, but when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, the play actors, the mask wearers, um, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. So they had, rather than the, um, the benefit, the satisfaction of abstaining from food for a period of time to focus on prayer, on devotion, meditation on scripture, all these good things, they had just made it, look how holy I am. I'm suffering for my righteousness. Look how, look how desperate I am, but I'm not going to break. You know, I'm not going to eat. I'm going to observe this fast, and I'm going to make sure that you see me suffering, doubled over in pain um, with an unwashed face to show you how great I am. But when you fast, so Jesus, of course, is not telling us not to fast, right? When you fast, uh, it's not a bad thing, we just have to do it in a way that honors God. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, that promise follows the careful observance of these good spiritual disciplines, these good and righteous deeds, when they are done with the purpose uh, of uh, being done before an audience of one, before God alone, and not before men, to try to get their adulation, their praise for being such a good person. The good of fasting is focusing, uh, is, to, is, to, uh, is to focus on the good things of God by eliminating food and praying instead. Um, God will bless our, our secret and humble obedience. So I've got two takeaways here, just briefly. Uh, let's remember the, uh, the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? <clears throat> the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So our passage today shows that glorifying God, hallowing his name, is the highest calling of the regenerated human heart. He's worthy of all the praise and all glory that we can ascribe to him and more. And he calls us to express it. These good things that we've looked at today, generosity, prayer, and fasting, are good things, but we make them bad when we do them for an ungodly reason, when we do it for our glory and not God's glory. And the second, we must glorify God without concern for the praise or hatred of other people. Our righteous deeds are done only before God, and it's wise to take extra steps to minimize or eliminate attention toward those good deeds. We should not be self-promoters. We should be Yahweh exalters. And that should be done as a response to his grace and not as some attempt to gain his grace. 
If we believe in Christ, if our sins are forgiven, we have his grace. And he's promised to give us grace upon grace. Um, that's, that should not lead us to self-righteousness. That should lead us to righteousness before God that honors his name as holy and sovereign and shows us to be small and, and needy. Any questions or comments on any of that? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yes, it is. Anyone else? All right. Well, I, I hope that, uh, that we've heard today that uh, God, our Heavenly Father, sees in secret what we do for the glory of His name, even if no one else does, and that He's, pr- he's promised to reward us, to bless us for uh, the faith that we place in him that is itself a gift and that the good things that we do even if no one else notices them they are to the praise of God and God will see them and God will will uh, bless us for them let's pray heavenly father we are thankful to you that you are close to us that you are our our heavenly father that you're not distant from us but you you see us and you hear us even if no one else does Um, and you bless us in our relationship with you. So help us as we have meditated on the scripture today, uh, as we go into worship today, that your name will be glorified, that we will give no notice even to ourselves and how we appear or how we sound or uh, what other people are doing. Uh, We need to focus on you alone. You are the one who saves. You are the one who sanctifies. You give the good gifts Help us to steward those gifts well. Help us to see you as as high and holy and exalted. And give us the words to praise you and to thank you for all that you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.